Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Ladies and gentlemen, Assalamu alaikum and welcome to episode 3 of The Scheme of Things. This is Zaki. And this is Talal Brahim. So, Tala, how has your fortnight been? Okay, so how has my fortnight been? Uh, uh, one good discovery that I would like to share with the audience. Uh, I, I've been uh, doing this on and off now. Uh, this was the third time, but I think for the rest of the audience, it will be uh, quite interesting to uh, go and witness for themselves. There is this uh, uh, local band, Malanga, uh, that performs uh, this venue in F7. I won't take the name of that venue, but it is near uh, a famous bookstore. They can go there, they can check out their live performances. Uh, uh, what cup of tea now you have a fairly good idea uh, what that uh, venue is it's a very uh, prominent spot in f7 marquis so i go there uh, every weekend i've been doing that since, since the last two weeks and uh, the music is very good and the tea as well uh, nice how about you how has your uh, so there was uh, one good thing and one bad thing. The, the bad thing was, you know, how Rawalpindi's traffic is. I have to pass through GT Road each day. And uh, there was a tremendous amount of rush over the past few days. It was jam-packed, including the Swan Bridge. Uh, and uh, it was hell. So that was one thing. But on the positive side, um, winters, are, it seems, are here. And... Uh, now uh, the air conditioning is officially off, so now we can enjoy in, in our fans, and we don't even need the fans during nighttime. So, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, I personally prefer winters, and that uh, brings a whole new charm to it. You know, there's this melancholy in winters; you can't have mm -hmm. that in summer because I I have this saying that summers are when you are most attentive. <laughs> <laughs> So, Tala, uh, what, what what's the first topic you'd like to shy, uh, you'd like to shed light on in this episode? Okay, the first topic is uh, is uh, it was quite uh, fascinating to uh, discover this uh, this shenanigan that is uh, happening between uh, India and Pakistan lately. So. Uh, uh -huh. So we are uh, uh, we are nowadays uh, we are contesting India's claim in the European Union that uh, the basmati rice sold by India is uh, isn't uh, genuine. Our 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 what do you call it? Our grain of basmati rice is more genuine than the Indians. So. Uh, Basically, uh, India applied for a GI tag, uh, a geographical indication tag in the EU in 2018 for the Basmati rice. Um, everyone knows uh, the aroma of Basmati rice is very popular. It's a very popular uh, uh, strand of rice. Uh, and uh, in India, it is produced in uh, the Union territories of Punjab, Haryana, Himachal Pradesh. The western and, side. Yes, the western side. 
so uh, so the european union has now invited uh, the member states and third parties to come forward with any objections and pakistan which also exports basmati rice to europe uh, announced on october 5 that it will file a counter claim with the european commission against india's exclusivity claim uh, and a deadline has been given to pakistan the deadline is uh, somewhere in december uh, for pakistan present okay. reason for its uh, reasons for its opposition so uh, uh, the, the 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 issue around the gi tag is uh, the geographical indication tag is that it attaches, attaches a premium to the product for example you have swiss made watches you have thai uh, silk and etc etc Uh, according to the World Intellectual Property Organization, so India has about a share of 65% in the global uh, basmati rice market. Uh, Pakistan takes the rest of uh, just more than 30%. And uh, uh, in the last three years, we have uh, doubled our exports to the European Union. Uh, uh, and it happened because uh, india has uh, repeatedly failed the, the the scientific test they have carried out uh, because according to uh, uh, the, the these uh, this research the pakistan has the permissible level of pesticides but india is failing to uh, improvise on that so uh, as a result of our rice exports to the european union has uh, has uh, crippled uh, back in august 2017 we were importing around 120000 metric tons but now uh, our exports have soared to almost 300000 metric tons and it has outpaced it is outpacing india so uh, that's impressive so, yes so we uh, earned uh, around uh, 2.2 billion dollars from rice exports in 2019 and uh, so far in 2020 uh, around 36% of our earnings are derived from the uh, export of basmati according to our commerce ministry data uh, so uh, this uh, gi tag push from the union side has caused uh, uh, a discomfort amongst pakistani policy makers and rice producers and quite rightly so we are racing in against time uh, to uh, present this case that uh, the 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 version of basmati rice we are producing it's more superior in quality but for that to do so we need to have uh, we need to uh, make rules for local geographical identity uh, registration indeed uh, and since long our uh, provincial because of our provincial politics we have been unable to do so uh, and if india happens to uh, solidify its credentials and somehow uh, win this uh, uh, gi tagging uh, gi tagging case that is uh, currently uh, happening Uh, the uh, it would it would uh, f- firmly entrench 
basmati rice uh, as an indian product in the mind of consumers worldwide and it would set up a precedent it would set up a precedent the next thing they would do is uh, they will go to uh, the world trade organization and then also this uh, uh, they would uh, get this uh, gi tag tagging mechanism in place and it would once they would go to once they get it accepted from the european commission uh, then they go to wto uh, there 164 countries will start giving them uh, this protection and will start accepting their tag so this is a very you know, important thing so we already have a lot of areas where we dispute one another as two neighboring countries uh, basmati is uh, i guess another frontier or another area where where uh, claims are conflicting so coming to your segment uh, what do you what do you want to start your presentation with well um i am going to i have two topics uh, scheduled for this uh, episode and you remember we discussed indo maldivian relations in detail in episode 2 yes. um but uh, before i discussed those the same topic again in greater detail there have been some very interesting developments uh, i'd just like to for the sake of uh, counterbalancing because i think this needs to be highlighted um uh, pakistan's uh, uh, new high commissioner to maldives uh, pakistan navy uh, rear admiral retired uh, uh, sorry vice admiral retired athar mukhtar uh, he is the high commissioner in maldives and it has been a tradition among uh, countries such as uh, pakistan bangladesh etc to appoint former naval officers in this island country for obvious reasons because it is a maritime nation and so i was observing that uh, over the past two months uh, the high commission in maldives has done some interesting uh, diplomatic activities um, uh, just recently uh, he got himself accredited admiral mukhtar uh, with the president of uh, maldives because uh, he couldn't earlier because of the lockdown in corona so he formally met in person presented his credentials and uh, then he interestingly he held meetings with the uh, bangladesh and sri lankan uh, high commissioners in maldives so i think that's a good thing that uh, you let uh, observers know what your intent is that you're open to dialogue in maldives with countries with which pakistan has avenues of uh, sharing a common agenda let's see how how much of a cooperation that was but another good thing which i think must be mentioned is the high commission in maldives has been involved in activities to promote um, educational cooperation with the government over there and give scholarship to maldivian students so i think as far as the you know the soft approach is concerned pakistan obviously does not have the sort of uh, economic incentives which india has to offer nor the expertise but uh, i think this is a good thing but uh, now coming to uh the details of what has been transpiring between india and maldives uh there was this very interesting statement given recently which caught my eye uh, given by maldives economic minister fayaz ismail and uh, he disclosed that his government is considering scrapping a 2017 free trade agreement with china which was 
issued during the government of Abdullah Yameen, former President Abdullah Yameen. I remember you discussed about the politics of Yameen and uh, Muhammad Nasheed in detail in the previous episode. Abdullah Yameen was considered a China boy by the New Delhi establishment. And though he wasn't that much pro-China as he was made out to be, but um, this free trade agreement, obviously it means it meant that uh, there would be no import duties in all, at all on uh, items being imported from China. As we discussed in the previous episode, uh, Maldives is a 100% uh, import dependent country. And the interesting statement which uh, Fayaz Ismail gave, Maldives' economic minister, um, well, obviously, he wanted to justify why they're doing that. So he said that uh, no duties on Chinese imports are being given at the expense of higher tariffs to other countries. And I quote him, uh, it would result in Maldives being too dependent on a single country, unquote. And then he went on to reiterate his government's uh, India first policy while adding, now this is interesting. So he, you know, he makes it clear that he didn't want to directly say that um, India is the country which we fear will be overtaken. So he tried to cover it up by saying that uh, we also want to give same treatment to Singapore and Dubai, uh, yani the UAE. Uh, but obviously we know what, uh, what he is hinting at. He is basically trying to alleviate concerns in New Delhi that uh, Chinese uh, preference in the trade is going to be a thorn uh, in whatever the government plans. And uh, interestingly, now here is the funny point. What does he go, uh, go on to add? Uh, Fayaz Ismail adds, quote, India has it within its powers to kill the Maldivian people and capture Maldives if it wanted to capture the island state, unquote. So <laughs> this is, so I mean, once he talks about scrapping the free trade agreement, then he goes on to, you know, just try to state the concerns within, um, you know, some of the more timid-minded Maldivian leaders who fear that India already has the capability of taking over the island. Now, interestingly, uh, the, the most interesting, interesting parallel you can draw here is that in uh, 2018, uh, former, uh, you know, uh, former uh, Maldivian leader, Mohammed Nasheed, gave a similar uh, comment to the Indian media. He said, I quote, India has the imagination and tools to get its way in the Maldives government, unquote. So you see, basically at that time, well, when um, uh, Yameen was the president, uh, Fayaz Ismail, the economic minister, was just a member of parliament. And according to him, he had uh, opposed this as a lawmaker. But uh, obviously, uh, Yameen had managed to get his way through. And this just goes to show you that how far India's economic clout has been able to influence local Maldivian politics at the cost of its independent foreign relations uh, with the other countries. Now, just in case the audience might be wondering, uh, there might be uh, some sounds going on in the background. Uh, there's a lot of uh, construction taking place in my neighborhood, so please ignore those. And now, uh, I just like to point out a brief timeline about uh, how close or how fond uh, Maldives' economic minister Fayaz Ismail is of India. A very brief timeline. So we'll start with July 2019. 
Fayaz Ismail visits India and signs an MOU on technical and vocational training with Dr. Mahendra Nath Pandey, India's Union Minister for Skill Development and Entrepreneurship. And then the next month in August 2019, uh, Fayaz Ismail launched a study on India-Maldives economic relations. It was a study, a very detailed case study uh, with the Indian High Commissioner to Maldives. And the occasion was that basically a delegation from India's Confederation of Indian Industry, the CII, had visited Maldives to look into increasing uh, bilateral uh, cooperation. Now, just to give you a background about what the CII is, the CII, Confederation of Indian Industry, is a non-governmental and industry-managed forum. It has more than 9,000 members from the public and private sectors representing various companies, small and medium-sized enterprises, multinational corporations. Now, uh, CII has offices in nine countries. And uh, two of them are in Asia, uh, Indonesia and Singapore. So they came to Maldives to expand their uh, the Indian business community's footprint. Now you would think that that is a one-off incident. But then just two months later in October 2019, Fayaz Ismail uh, visited the Indian Business Expo in the capital Malay. And he called for better collaboration with Indian business entities. So obviously he was trying to promote and encourage um, uh, enhanced trade cooperation between Indian and Maldivian business groups. And uh, the focus area of that particular expo in October 2019 was uh, Maldives' collaboration with Kerala, which is the a southern Indian state. Now, in the previous episode, you remember we discussed about the connectivity with two ports, the ferry uh, cargo service. So that was in the, the port which we discussed, that was in Tamil Nadu. And this is Kerala. So you can see that the, uh, the south of India, the peninsular states, um, they are vying for increased economic uh, partnership with Maldives. And if you look into now uh, the recent statement made by Fayaz Ismail, it seems that um, it is it, the pattern suggests over the past one and one and a half years that um, they uh, India is desperately trying to make itself the country on which Maldives is dependent on exclusively for its uh, needs such as especially food, um, food security, pharmaceuticals, etc., medical tourism. These are the three things which the Maldives government says it is uh, the bedrock of Indo-Maldivian economic partnership. And um, before I conclude this session, I'd just like to point out uh, the two of the most important, three of the most important developments regarding India's influence because um, it would, uh, not be prudent to uh, subtract those elements just to give you a picture that how India has been able to achieve that level of progress or how it has been able to make a Maldives minister review their free trade agreement with China. So I won't take you too far. We'll talk about this year. So in Corona, we know that India provided almost $250 million as a medical aid to the Maldivian government. So that is like the COVID relief efforts. It is a good soft power initiative. In August 2020, India announced funding for the Greater Malay Connectivity Project, the GMCP. Um, the project basically looks into building a long bridge which will link three island uh, provinces of Maldives, namely Vilingili, Gulhi Fahu, and Tilafushi. I hope I'm pronouncing the names correctly. 
and the project is uh, an estimated 500 million american dollars uh, 400 million dollars are line of credit and 100 million dollars are grant from the uh, indian government so that is considered as a monumental infrastructural investment which has the tendency the actual tendency to compete with china's own geoeconomic initiative in maldives especially the island development then we come to september 2020 so a delegation from the airports authority of india visited hani madhu international airport which is in northern maldives for an assessment why because india has was selected as the country which would uh, expand the maldives airport and the report is expected to be completed in around 2 months so by 2021 next year onward indian aviation experts and construction uh, management experts will be in maldives looking to expand the airport so we have infrastructure on one end we have connectivity on the other end both of these prongs have are being covered by india lastly the concluding statement for this topic uh, uh, indian media reported that india's uh, foreign secretary harsh vardhan shringla is expected to visit maldives in november 2020 so that's just next month and uh, the only two countries he visited this year in the asian region include bangladesh and recently myanmar he went to myanmar with the indian army chief general manoj mukund narwane so after bangladesh and myanmar this will be shringla's third visit to maldives you can see the uh, the work in the indian ocean region going on the diplomatic initiative going on so to sum it up basically maldives is india is not just focusing on its eastern seaboard and trying to form military alliances or economic partnerships with asean also but it is also equally mindful of developments to its south the southern indian ocean portion uh, the island countries and i think Uh, when we talk about military power of india it is also uh, always uh, uh, pragmatic to discuss the soft power initiatives i mean these these geoeconomic initiatives in maldives at the end of the day we all know that they are meant to influence the um, governments which receive those develop and we discussed previously about supplying donier aircraft to maldives and then we discussed mauritius and seychelles so on and so forth so literal countries yes bangladesh and myanmar covered island countries maldives yes now let's see maybe in the coming few months we'll hear some other countries in alongside east africa being uh, visited by top level indian officials so this uh, i think is something that pakistan needs to be mindful of our high commission in maldives is uh, doing quite a quite an impressive job but i think we'll need to really up the ante we can't just be passive observers to these big projects and the and uh, just to you know just to finally add a last comment on this particular topic uh, the question often comes to us i receive a few questions from people in my email inbox and they ask me that you talk about uh, these countries with which pakistan doesn't really have any concern well let me ask you this uh, pakistan's the entire hocus pocus going on around cpec which i believe is a very ambitious um, project that is ultimately dependent on how much china is able to exert its regional influence now if you minus that if there are some regional powers trying to curtail that influence uh, do you really expect pakistan to just be alone by itself and try to reap economic benefits from cpec without chinese influence in the region i don't think so uh, yes <clears throat> uh, uh, even uh, in fact uh, uh, 
I wanted to hear this from you. You must have heard of this news. Uh, four days back, I, I read about this that Pompeo is planning to visit Sri Lanka and Maldives uh, in this month only. Indeed. So, uh, you're very right. Uh, more activities are happening in the Indian Ocean region. And uh, we as Pakistanis need to uh, look at them, uh, what's happening. And, see how we can craft our own policies of our own, our own line of thinking about what's happening. So, uh, we are done with Basmati. So, uh, yes. So, I was reading this very interesting article uh, because uh, I talked about Secretary Pompeo and Every episode, we somehow we start uh, we, we discuss this. Uh, uh, it has been uh, it has happened to us. This is the third time. Uh, Indian Ocean region politics uh, come up time and again. So uh, in this in this uh, video podcast as well, uh, I found this very interesting article that was uh, published by Paul of the Rocks and uh, it was uh, written by Mark Montgomery. The retired Navy uh, Admiral uh, who served as a director for operations in uh, US uh, Indo Pacific Command. So uh, he has written about Esper's uh, new plan for the US Navy. And he, Defense Secretary Esper. Defense Secretary Esper's new plan for the Navy and whether it is enough for the Indo Pacific or not. Some interesting, uh, some interesting uh, tidbits from that article. I won't be going through it. Uh, it, won't, it isn't a comprehensive review. It is just some interesting. What I found interesting, I'll be discussing that. So, uh, Defense Secretary Esper is uh, will be introducing uh, the uh, this document, the Future Naval Force Study. Uh, it is also known as the 30-year shipbuilding plan and it is unique to the United States Navy. Uh, neither the Army nor the Air Force produced such a comprehensive uh, long-term procurement planning document. And uh, according to Mark Montgomery, uh, this study that will be unveiled uh, very soon it is a strong signal of the administration's commitment to implement the national defense strategy that was uh, promulgated in 2018. Uh, and so that's uh, going to operationalize it, basically. Yes, they are. Uh, they are coming up with that plan. Operationalization would take time. Uh, operationalization of that plan would take time, but they are coming up with that plan after a long time. Uh, according to Mark Montgomery, it will be a powerful statement for the Secretary of Defense to articulate the force structure that he sees as necessary to field the most critical naval forces for the most demanding adversary, for which his combatant commanders have to plan. Okay, so uh, Esper, uh, that document has not been uh, has not been published yet. It has not been uh, 
it, it, it has not been introduced yet, formally not introduced yet, but uh, some uh, uh, some presentations that were given in, uh, in Rand Corporation and one another think tank, Washington-based think tank. Esper has uh, talked about certain aspects uh, regarding this uh, future naval force study that would give us an insight, an initial peek of what the study is about. Uh, the first thing is when before Mark Montgomery has uh, talked, has uh, laid out those points which Esper has talked about. He has said that the media coverage of any, and it, I found it very interesting, uh, the media coverage of any naval force structure plan, uh, plan quite quickly spirals into a discussion of ship numbers, 355 or 500 in, the, in this case, and arguments over how to characterize unmanned vessel and what size vessel counts. In reality, what is of greatest importance is not the number of ships, but the composition of the fleet, quote unquote. One can produce a 450 ship uh, Navy heavy on corvettes and amphibious ships and get nowhere against China. Conversely, one can build a 300 ship Navy with an emphasis on attack submarines and missile tubes, thus producing a war winning capability. Therefore, before one can assess the value of the secretary plan, it is essential to know what is being built to achieve. And uh, the principal measuring stick for, for uh, a naval force structure assessment should be how it contributes to the US military ability to deter and if deterrence fails, defeat Chinese aggression in the South China Sea. Interesting. Uh, in both the near and distant future. In, in planning for any crisis in the Western Pacific, the geography of the theater makes the principal war fighting requirements air and maritime in nature. That has been laid out. So uh, the role of army is just as a supporting force. US army Indeed. will be act as a supporting force. Uh, the principal war, uh, war fighting services will be uh, Navy and US Air Force. So uh, now coming to experts' comments, uh, what uh, what uh, is being what will shortly what will be postulated about the larger naval force structure once that fu uh, future plan will be unveiled. Esper, uh, certain comments of Esper were picked out from his uh, talks. Esper emphasized about the need to protect America's most critical war fighting capability in the Western Pacific. That is an asymmetric advantage America has in undersea warfare. So this was one thing. Uh, uh, secondly, Esper talked about the unmanned platform of all types. But according to Mark Montgomery, uh, it is a welcome emphasis. He rightly, Esper rightly committed to the goal that every future fixed wing aircraft beyond the F-35, uh, it can be strike, uh, strike jet, it can be fighter jet, it can be a refueling aircraft, electronic warfare aircraft, early warning and so on. 
needs to have optionally unmanned or unmanned only design but uh, according to montgomery this proclamation or this emphasis of esper is in stark, stark contrast to uh, the the navy's recent plan uh, uh, navy's recent statement that is that the next generation the sixth generation of carrier based fighter aircraft will be manned so esper is one saying one thing and uh, uh, the aviation wing of US Navy is saying another thing. Third, That's he talked an interesting observation. Okay. So, uh, third, he, Mon uh, Mon according to Montgomery, uh, Esper uh, talked about the aircraft carrier numbers. Uh, the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, argued for a carrier force of eight to 11 nuclear carriers and up to six additional light carriers. Montgomery has a critique on this. He said that uh, one should hope there is no plan for an actual new class of light carriers. Nothing could be more fiscally irresponsible than initiating a new large deck ship design. Given that the Navy had a consistent track record of going over budget on all of its recent large ship class designs. Uh, then he said there is a reasonable argument for repurposing some of the existing amphibious assault ships, namely landing helicopter assault and landing helicopter dock ships as very light carriers, which could help with some of the uh, less demanding combatant commander requirements. Indeed. So uh, the third issue uh, that, was, uh, that came under discussion was uh, of the aircraft carrier numbers. Uh, uh, as per argued for a carrier force of 8 to 11 nuclear carriers and up to 6 additional light carriers. Okay. Montgomery um, He said that uh, there should be no plan for an actual new class of light carriers uh, because uh, in the past, Navy has been fiscally irresponsible. Uh, uh, Navy has a consistent track record of going over budget on all of its large ship class designs. And uh, Montgomery said that there is a reasonable, uh, there is a reasonable, it can be reasonably argued that uh, the existing amphibious assault uh, ships, uh, the landing helicopter assault uh, and landing helicopter dock ships can be repurposed as bad carriers and uh, it could help with some of the less demanding requirements of uh, US Navy. Uh, another uh, issue after this, the, for the, fourth, the fourth observation, this is the observation of Mark Montgomery. Uh, he said that Esper uh, didn't talk much about uh, the amphibious warfare. And according to Montgomery, this is, uh, th this is good. Uh, because uh, this is a wise decision because China's current defensive capabilities and the uh, ongoing expense to the US Navy associated with maintaining this amphibious assault capability uh, is not, uh, is not uh, given China's current defensive capabilities and the expenses associated with, this, uh, uh, with maintaining this capability is not, uh, is not wise. <clears throat> And he said that, the, that previously, uh, 
our most demanding amphibious uh, assault capabilities were tied to planning for North Korean contingencies. And US and South Korean uh, planners have worked on it. So he said that uh, if we want to, we can uh, redirect uh, some of the work that we have done in the past. Uh, and uh, we can prepare some, we can identify some alternative concepts of operations in preparing for this amphibious contingency. Uh, and uh, it's a good thing. Uh, apart from that, uh, another point that came up uh, in uh, Esper's commentary was that the large. Montgomery, Montgomery. Esper's comment. As, as this, this is Esper's comment to. Uh, oh. Okay, so Esper has also talked about how the United States need to reduce uh, the number of its uh, large surface combatants. So, according to Montgomery, this is also a very smart decision. Uh, they have a, a large surface combatant uh, uh, in the form of cruisers and destroyers that uh, should be produced. And uh, uh, there is this emergence of new frigate class to conduct sea control and defend, defend high value units. And it is a good thing that uh, this is being discussed and this will be acted upon. Uh, another, uh, another, and this will be the final thing uh, from Esper's commentary uh, in, in, in the think tanks in Washington think tanks that uh, uh, there is an emphasis, there is a renewed emphasis on combat logistics force uh, related aspects. So, according to Montgomery, it is a credit to this force structural assessment that this is even in discussion as reducing logistic capabilities has been a constant source of operational risk over the past two decades. A focus on increasing the raw numbers of logistics ships for distributed operations across the Western Pacific is bold and contributes to logistical and warfighting requirements. Uh, and uh, then uh, finally, uh, this is the conclusion from Montgomery's side. We are done with the comments of uh, Mark Esper. Uh, according to one the naval force structure assessment that Esper is hinting at puts down some good markets related to the requirements to deter or defeat China. Uh, it emphasizes uh, on attack submarines. It delivers a much needed impetus to unmanned air surface and undersea vessel planning. It uh, it shifts amphibious assets away from the unlikely and risky forcible uh, maneuvers and increased logistics capacity, but it also takes risk with aircraft carriers and large surface combatant reductions. These are certain risks, uh, aircraft carriers making of new aircraft carriers and reducing the number of large surface combatants. Uh, this, was, this was a very uh, good piece and I really enjoyed reading it. Well, that's interesting. Uh, now, I hadn't planned to speak on the Pacific side of affairs and that uh, you are covering it in this episode. But uh, I'd just like to add, it, it is somewhat related about the point you mentioned on the focus on uh, the amphibious element of uh, warfare, the amphibious force structure. And uh, recently I read this uh, uh, interesting news article which uh, reported that uh, China's President Xi Jinping who actually initiated 
the reforms and restructuring of uh, PLA into uh, end of 2015. Mm. He uh, recently mm. visited uh, the PLA Navy's uh, Marine Corps uh, command, and he gave them a detailed lecture, and he urged them to be a quote-unquote elite force. Uh, and uh, one of the things which he mentioned was that uh, he tried to uh, reiterate uh, the concept of why China raised a Marine Corps in the first place. Uh, and one of the elements which he mentioned, uh, the, the report by China Military Online, it says that one of the mandates includes, quote-unquote, protection of overseas interests. So what I believe is that... Um, what you've mentioned is that uh, the air and land component, obviously that implies uh, when we're talking about the US Navy, um, the Marine Corps element, the amphibious warfare element, that is basically, you know, the conjunction of air and uh, uh, maritime warfare. And uh, those elements, amphibious war is going to be crucial components because uh, Montgomery rightly mentions uh, it is the fleet composition which makes more sense as compared to uh, the number of uh, vessels or equipment you have. So I think what uh, in, uh, Chinese analysts based in the West, uh, they have this saying that whenever uh, President Xi of China, whenever he tries to reiterate or resolve in the PLA, it is actually whipping them up and telling them to you know pull themselves together and focus on improving their training uh, regimen. Because uh, there, there is this impression, yes, that um, the U.S. Marine Corps, the U.S. Navy has extensive experience since before the world wars of uh, beach conducting beach landings, coastal defense, maritime interdiction. But this is where China lacks because, frankly, China, although has conducted a, a few pockets of um, uh, coastal landings and, uh, you know, peninsular uh, operations uh, during the Taiwan crisis, but it does not have the equivalent capability or nor the experience, the tactics and techniques to uh, match the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps. So I think this makes for a very good reading. And the fact that a, a former U.S. Indo-Pacific <coughs> Command writer, he mentions this. I think uh, this makes for good reading. And I'd actually request you to please share a copy of that with me once uh, we are done with this program. So um, I'd just like to now come to... Talha just discussed uh, the Western Pacific and uh, East Asia in detail. I'd like to uh, discuss some very pertinent series of pertinent developments in uh, the Horn of Africa. Now, as we all know that um, the red waters linking Red Sea with the Indian Ocean, especially the point in Babel Mandab Strait, it uh, constitutes uh, one of the most strategic waterways for uh, global maritime traffic. And um, in fact, the entire uh, market uh, supply chains depend on uh, the traffic coming to and from the Suez Canal near Egypt. And uh, just to let the audience know, uh, I've written an upcoming paper for uh, uh, the Center for Strategic and Contemporary Research. It will be published soon. Uh, it discusses about CPEC in context to East Africa and uh, the Horn of Africa. So do look forward to that as well. Now, there are some uh, developments which I'd like to highlight uh, in sequence, so going chronologically. Uh, I'm going to limit myself to the Horn of Africa. Now, the Horn of Africa is the specific zone which 
consists of Sudan, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Kenya, Djibouti, Somalia, and uh, this is uh, um, uh, this is one of the places where um, Arab Gulf countries, including the U.S. and China, have been uh, contesting hotly to try to gain control. Uh, we begin with uh, uh, the, the UAE, which you know has been involved in the war in Yemen. And uh, the same war in which it tried to invite Pakistan and Pakistan uh, politely refused to partake. Um, but since 2018, uh, the UAE military has a presence in the island of Socotra, S-O-C-O-T-R-A, Socotra Island. It is a Yemeni island, uh, which is uh, located um, to uh, more than 200 kilometers east of uh, the Horn of Africa. And it is a uh, and why it is important right now. It it is hotly in the news is because uh, as per uh, recent updates by uh, France-based intelligence online, a very credible source of information. And the same news was published by the Jewish Telegraph Agency based in France. And they reported that the UAE and Israeli governments are jointly collaborating to set up an intelligence base in Socotra. Uh, I touched upon this briefly in the previous podcast. And this has been uh, a hotly debated issue. Uh, some analysts uh, even pointed out that Saudi Arabia gave its uh, silent consent over this because Saudi Arabia does have influence on Yemen. Uh, and the fact that uh, this uh, news is not just hearsay, multiple authoritative outlets in the West have reported this. It points to a predicament which is going to have mid to long term consequences for Pakistan's geoeconomic interests in the region. Why is that? I'll uh, mention it further. Uh, coming to point number two. So first I talk of Socotra. So please bear in mind that um, Israeli UAE collaboration, Israeli Marathi collaboration in Socotra Island to set up an intelligence outpost. So now we have the federal government in Somalia signing a 14 year deal with Turkish company Al Barak. Please bear in mind Al Barak is the same company which has a lot of investments in Pakistan as well. So this Turkish company won a 14 year contract with the government of Somalia to manage and operate the port in Mogadishu, which is the capital. Uh, the interesting thing is now this is where geopolitics comes into play. The port was developed by UAE's DP World. Now DP World, Dubai Ports World, is a very, very famous um, holding company in the UAE. And uh, Talha, if you remember in my on my timeline, I created this uh, on my Twitter profile. I posted a link to an interactive timeline of uh, engagements between Israel and the UAE before they uh, quote unquote normalized their relations. And uh, I mentioned that long before, so we are talking about early 2000s, the D uh, DP world of uh, UAE was interested in forging uh, economic relations with um, Israel's Zim shipping services. So DP world has known to be one of the front runners in trying to convince the UAE leadership of uh, recognizing Israel and normalizing relations for the sake of larger geostrategic and geoeconomic interests. Mm -hmm. Now, the important thing is that it was the same DP world which had built this Mogadishu port in Somalia in the first place. So why did the federal government in Somalia award the contract to a Turkish company? 
the reason is because uh, uh, you will first have to study that uh, the co composition of politics and society within Somalia. You will know that uh, there is a self-proclaimed autonomous region within Somalia known as Somaliland. It is considered a self-declared territory by subversive elements who do not accept the federal government of Somalia and they consider themselves a separate country. So uh, the UAE's company DP World, it made investments into uh, Somaliland in 2018. It created a military base in Somaliland, the UAE government. And a year before that, in 2017, there is another autonomous region in Somalia, Puntland, P-O-N-T-L-A-N-D. Um, the DP World constructed uh, a new port there as well. So basically, the UAE support for these two autonomous regions, Puntland in 2017 and Somaliland in 2018, was severely um, frustrated upon by Somali lawmakers in the federation. They considered this uh, uh, a provocative uh, sign of the UAE trying to uh, discreetly take over Somalia and create it to a satellite state for um, uh, its uh, interests in Africa. And so now you see that the federal government has, uh, of Somalia has clearly decided that it wants to award the contract from more than a decade to a Turkish company. So Turkey has won the contract in the federal government in Somalia. Now, interestingly, um, related to Somalia also is the fact that just recently, US President Donald Trump informed his top advisors, which include his national security advisor and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that he wants to withdraw US troops from Somalia. Uh, the US currently has 650 to 800 troops to fight the terrorist Al-Shabaab group over there. So with the US pulling out of Somalia, if that happens, we still don't know if that is going to be fulfilled. So with the US coming out of Somalia, there will be a vacuum and that is where Turkey, Turkish and Emirati uh, forces will be combining to gain um, control of that important country. But again, let's pause. So first you have the UAE as a common actor so keeping Israel aside, UAE is a common actor first in Socotra, which is to the east of Horn of Africa. Then you have it within the Horn of Africa in Somalia, in Somaliland actually. And a neighboring country of Somalia is Eritrea. Just to let the audience know, won't go into detail, Eritrea is already a vassal state of the UAE and the UAE has set up a large military base in Eritrea. It basically serves as a, an important base for uh, supporting insurgency within Somalia against the federal forces and for uh, having an access to uh, overflight and naval uh, operations in Yemen. So basically when uh, uh, the Eritrean territory serves as a for the conduct of offensives and pushes into Yemen for the UAE leadership. In a sense, you can say that the Horn of Africa on both sides, Eritrea and Socotra, is covered by uh, two places where the UAE has a good foothold. In between, you have Somalia where Turkey appears to have gotten control. Now, we talk about Djibouti. 
Djibouti is also a country which is right exactly on the horn of Africa. If there is one country which you could say forms the core of the horn of Africa, that is Djibouti. We all know the US has a base over there, Camp Limonium. Japan has a base over there. The PLA Navy has a base over there. So China, Japan, US, they have a base over there. The UAE has been... Yes. The, uh, and this is where uh, things get interesting now. The most important development which I have recently seen uh, is that uh, the US has been equally mindful of uh, PLA trying to make inroads into the Western Indian Ocean, the East African side, and not just in the Pacific. So you mentioned in detail that they're fo focusing on improving their force capabilities in Western Pacific and East Asia. But uh, if you remember Talha, that the 2020 US Defense Department report to Congress, it says that the Chinese presence in um, this region, the Western Indian Ocean, quote, extends Beijing's military reach and strategic influence in Africa and the Middle East, unquote. And they actually pointed toward the fact that this Chinese presence in Djibouti, again, the keyword is Djibouti, it gives China access to influence affairs in the Mediterranean as well as the Indian Oceans. So we have to bear in mind that whether or not Pakistan is interested in looking beyond North Arabian Sea, whether or not Pakistan thinks it doesn't have the money, doesn't have the resources to look into areas beyond its uh, primary periphery. But the fact remains that you have these waters to your southwest where these regional actors are creating a potpourri. It's basically where all of them are melting together and trying to compete. And ultimately, uh, when you look into the long run, if any one of these actors engages in crossing the red lines, you can expect some sort of a crisis to go on over there, which could ultimately disrupt the entire maritime traffic, not just for Pakistan, but for some other countries as well. So one of those other countries, and this is coming to my next point, is Japan. Interestingly, We've heard commentary by the US and Indian media establishments. They try to say that China appoints uh, former military officers, just like you see um, the Indian media created a ruckus that China appointed a, a non-diplomat as their new ambassador to Islamabad, which is a fact actually. But uh, here's something for Pakistan to ponder upon. Japan recently appointed its first and only former military officer as ambassador to Djibouti. Now, who is this person? I'll discuss him. His name is Vice Admiral Retired Otsuka Umio. So, Mr. Umio, uh, Vice Admiral Retired Umio is a former Japanese Self-Defense Force officer uh, and he was just recently appointed ambassador to Djibouti. A brief profile, um, uh, Admiral Umio joined the Maritime Self-Defense Force in 1983. And Talha, in 2002-3, to three, so this is like in 2001, the US invaded um, Iraq and then, you know, Afghanistan. Those wars took place in the first five years of 2000 uh, in Iraq. And basically, the Central Command, it was fully charged up. You had Central Command being the crux of uh, global politics. So when that was happening, Mr. Umio was the senior national representative of Japan to the US Central Command in Florida in the headquarters in Tampa. So basically, uh, 
in the early us incursions into the middle east and um, west asia side mr umio had experience first hand into the plans and strategies going on into this region so at that level as a mid ranking officer he was uh, familiar with what is going on and the us interests and in, uh, its uh, maritime force policy making in the region so he has that visibility which is important he later served as president of the maritime self defense force command and staff college and he didn't just serve as the president he actually established himself the institute for future warfare studies so he is known to be someone who uh, has a good approach toward perspective planning so you have a person who operationally has insight into us operational planning in uh, the central uh, command which covers pakistan and including the waters in the gulf side well the his current assignment in djibouti doesn't come under the central command to be honest it comes under us naval forces europe and africa command but that uh, portion of horn of africa where he is currently appointed it comes under the us africa command area of operations i don't need to go into the details even the audience knows you know as well that the new strategy for western indian ocean basically uh, creates a tri juncture incorporating elements of central european and african commands just to let you know talha that uh, a recent interview with uh, the incoming commander of uh, us uh, forces in europe he mentioned that the us has actually decided to merge africa command with europe so this is the recent news which has taken place in the past week or so so africa and european elements are being joined together and you have admiral otsuka umio who is a former maritime self defense force officer being posted to djibouti now here's something more interesting about this gentleman he retired just in december 2019 it hasn't been a year also since he retired and immediately after his retirement he was appointed as a distinguished fellow at the rusi royal united services institute in uk and uh, he did give various presentations and lectures at rusi at the time as he was serving president of msdf command and staff college he gave various presentations i actually came across a presentation by uh, admiral usio in which he mentions about uh, there is a proper slide in which he discusses uh, pl and navy presence in the indian ocean and his extreme focus has been on naval submarine and other submarine visits to pakistan see so if anyone in the audience is interested any of the listeners to the podcast are interested um you can maybe inbox me on twitter or you can email me the the public link to that slide is available uh, on rusi's uh, slide share account you can access it and you can study it it was basically a net assessment of uh, pla navy capabilities and that whole slide was i will consider to share share that powerpoint presentation with me as well definitely definitely so is he just an academic is he just someone who visited these various think tanks and was was he just posted to central command well you will be interested to know that after his appointment at the command and staff college of maritime self defense force uh, just before his retirement uh, admiral umio was director general of defense intelligence headquarters 
so basically naval intelligence was one of the areas in which he was focused on exclusively and just to tell you that um, you know i am going to share something which might seem like a very timid observation but when you open that slide i will share the slide with you which uh, admiral umio prepared for rusi his entire mapping geo mapping of pla navy submarines visiting pakistan do you know what are the sources he mentions obviously you won't expect him to discuss japanese naval intelligence reports he had to cite something which was in the public domain all of the sources he mentioned are india today uh, indian newspapers <laughs> and i mean so you you can see that his entire mapping now we are talking of a senior japanese maritime officer very closely following indian media reports and you can see the angle which he is discussing and his entire focus has been on those visits from colombo alongside africa going toward gwadar and karachi and i think it is most important um, he mentions um, the first thing he mentioned was um, in 2013 december two month deployment of a pla navy submarine and in 2016 uh, 15 and 16 uh he mentioned about uh, pla navy submarines visiting pakistan and he mentions very prominently that uh, Pakist- uh, the pla navy sold eight submarines to pakistan and interestingly uh, there is something which he also also mentions that is uh, pla navy's uh, submarine moving in the gulf of adan now this is just uh, near uh, djibouti so what i'm trying to say is that this gentleman Uh, he is not just a former military officer who is you know just going to maybe have a more uh, intricate mind of the region because he hasn't himself been directly uh, posted over there well in his earlier career as a young officer he was involved in um, various uh, some of his tenures included counter piracy operations in the gulf of adan which japan and many other countries are a part of but you see talha where we are going Uh, my recent piece um, for your website we discussed jimex the multilateral exercise with india we discussed that um, the uh, japan navy also held um, a passage exercise with pakistan navy and then mm-hmm. japan navy has also been holding exercises with the uh, uh, us in this region so we have a former naval intelligence officer an academic someone whose primary area has been china's so called hybrid warfare and he has spoken extensively on china's belt and road initiative that was the theme of his talk at rusi all right and uh, rusi has not published his exact comments the reason is obviously understood because i am sure those comments are for a limited audience but they did in one of the summaries rusi mentions i quote and this is from february 2020 rusi website mentions that among the things which admiral umio discussed was quote the absence of coordinated policy in preventing china from buying their way into other territories unquote hmm. so i leave it at that i won't go into speculation that admiral umio one of the topics which he discussed what we can extract from the surface is 
that he was interested in the absence of a coordinated effort you see those words make a lot of sense in trying to curtail china's perceived ingress into the region and quote unquote buying its way into other territories i am sure that other territories does not refer to china's own periphery which is in the taiwan strait or east asia i am sure that it must definitely be an in uh, a referral to china's uh, the pla navy's presence in the western indian ocean and so you see where we are going with this and i think this is important i just made sure to check the chinese embassy website in djibouti china does not have a military officer stationed in djibouti in fact i haven't been able to find a single military officer of china, a former military officer of pla appointed to any of the diplomatic missions of china in the east african belt so the question arises why does japan or why did japan consider it imperative to appoint a former senior naval intelligence officer a former director general of defense intelligence to djibouti now in the larger context you can see that uae has its foothold socotra eritrea in between you have djibouti where japan has appointed a former naval intelligence officer the us has a presence and uh, according to lumoa now even india can avail of the facilities the only country which uh, only two countries which are actually acting as some sort of a deterrent over here are number one china with its limited presence in djibouti but turkey now turkey is an important factor in fact turkey is also training the somali army which begs the question so now i am going to move away from uh, the points which i focused on in detail now we come to the bigger picture tala my question to you is in the larger scheme of things in the long term scheme of things we also have qatar qatar's diplomatic representative uh, to the united nations he also mentioned that qatar will fully support i quote fully support uh, efforts for institution building in somalia we know that the turkish qatari block this geo strategic block in uh, the west asian region and africa it is directly opposing to uh, the us led alliance which includes israel and talha isn't it also interesting that sudan is also among the horn of africa nations and it recently rec recognized israel so you have another country which is also indirectly going to benefit uae interests so sudan eritrea uh, somaliland uh, puntland and socotra are now in the israel us uae gulf camp you have this little tiny effort an autonomous effort of turkey and qatar trying to create their own block over there and you have china sandwiched in between i am not going to draw any parallels between china or points of convergence with turkey that is beyond me i do not i am not in a position to comment on that we'll wait and see what develops but you see uh, there is this concern that with egypt already being part of that effort you remember that earlier commentary i wrote about 2 months ago about turkey being the actual target i mentioned that there is going to be an arc from israel and it is going to a semicircle going to come from the uae and horn of africa toward the suez canal that seems to be operationalizing in the larger context of cpec and belt and road initiative you pakistan needs to ask itself 
what about china i mean who is going to come to china fine uh, you can't expect that uh, the turks or the qataris to come to china's aid in case there is a conflict in the high seas but in the midst of all this will pakistan just be sitting and looking at the situation as its usual unbothered self and what are we going to do about this because frankly speaking now we talk about pakistan i am sure you will agree with me in this whole situation pakistan is not an enemy of the us pakistan is not an enemy of the uae pakistan is not an enemy of turkey pakistan is not an enemy of qatar pakistan is not an enemy of china so all of china's pakistan's good friends they are involved in a geo strategic and geo economic competition in uh, the horn of africa and pakistan is just sitting here and happily uh, uh, thinking about the time when all uh, things will be perfectly fine and trade will go on in cpec and so forth but are we actually thinking in the long term what if these actors initiate a conflict i mentioned in my article that there could be a flashpoint in this region in east africa in the horn of africa so what are we going to do about it are we just going to wait and watch and ironically some of our viewers who watch this uh, podcast and who hear you out they ask you why should we get involved in things that uh, don't directly concern us <laughs> okay <clears throat> but batalha uh, my my question i'm i'm not going to take any names here it's a risky business in pakistan <laughs> so without getting into too many um, juicy details i have a question to those people who uh, uh, are actually you know have better visibility of things uh. why i understand that we are in a strategic timidity we we, we are just you know we have our whole internal things going on we have our economy to focus on and blah 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 but let's go to the apparent optics now we have to look at the bright side of things according to the apparent optics the optics so pakistan wants to focus on economic diplomacy and i remember in another show of ours we had uh, a young analyst she discussed in detail about pakistan Uh, why it should focus on east asia my question to you is pakistan is already working on look africa program we want to actually gain as much from the african market as possible we uh, and you know it's quite ironic that instead of um focusing on uh, capacity building of the africans we actually want them to be our importers so i think that's also this very weird that dilemma going on that those countries are much much poorer than us and we want them to be one of our biggest export markets so that's the irony number 1 the irony number 2 is that when these countries gradually you know now and then tomorrow tanzania it recently scrapped this uh, important monumental project under bri it told china that we are not going to go ahead with it there are too many conditions will not go into the details of whether the concerns are legitimate or not each sovereign nation has its rights but absent that influence pakistan from the economic angle you know that so called the foreign minister's economic diplomacy initiative focused on look africa this and that when that whole conflict is going on in africa you have those geostrategic actors you have maritime forces are we just so are we just so 
how can i put it are we so naive are we really so naive to what is going on in the horn of africa and east africa why are we not not bothered about these things that simply simply eludes me i'm i am at a loss of words maybe you can help me understand no no i cannot help you understand <laughs> uh, so <laughs> okay so after having a discussion with you uh, we uh, consulted with uh, one of our one of our very uh, bright young researcher and uh, she wrote this piece which you sh- you also shared on twitter <clears throat> it was a very interesting piece i think uh, these kind of initiatives can be can be a start uh we have this researcher has made up this case that uh, how pakistan and china needs to engage other pri states uh in the african region uh in east east asia other places to uh make their own uh, network uh, of information sharing enhance their own maritime domain awareness i think this can be these kind of initiatives can be a start but uh, frankly i don't know what the people who are in the thick of things uh, who are uh, uh, who, who are doing things at the policy level how much are they perceptive about what's happening and when can they take note of uh, uh, these serious things that are going on um it was uh, quite a learning experience for me uh, uh, you are commentary about how uh, japan has appointed their uh, defense uh, a person from the defense establishment uh, in djibouti quite interesting so uh, okay so uh, uh, and this also talha this also uh, needs to be said that um, you see it's good that we are uh, we we cannot be oblivious to developments in the pacific because now we know that china is an all weather friend it is a strategic cooperative partner it is an iron partner of pakistan and so Uh, any development from the security or economic angle which could have negative repercussions for china automatically should be construed as the fact that that is going to impact our portion of the gains which is cpec am i right mm-hmm. and uh, when we know that our long term interests are interlinked if the interests of the long term can be interlinked why can't the outreach of the long term also be interlinked now for details i would uh, going to leave a little teaser uh, the audience including the listeners are requested that uh, in a couple of days uh, the center for strategic and contemporary research will be publishing my perspective paper the tentative title which i chose is that cpec success hinges on pakistan's maritime strategic depth in east africa i've tried to keep it uh, as generic as possible for the general reader i don't like to go into too many concepts but the fact remains that uh, i have mentioned um, just going to uh, leave this point here that 
it's good that pakistan uh, is gradually trying to focus on indian ocean but also remains the fact that there is a whole continent of africa um, bordering the indian ocean in which uh, we might be going in with economic and commercial avenues but the strategic competition taking place over there is going on in parallel and if we just assume that china or even for example the turkish actors over there they'll come in support of pakistan's interests and unrealistic expectations from countries which have their own national agendas i think that would be a grand delusion and nothing short of that and uh, another interesting thing is that um, there is something which i forgot to mention i talked about socotra i talked about the horn of africa so let me just come a bit uh, north from the horn of africa let me come to the gulf of oman and the gulf of aden we know that the indian navy already has an uh, an intelligence outpost and an um, a, a basing facility in oman in the dukum port so you see if uh, india has been able to go in, into an uh, out of area contingency mode in case it wants to you know use those facilities for uh, contingency planning and if india um, talha mentioned about um, uh the american navy being concerned about combat logistics am i right talha you mentioned about combat logistics in the western pacific america has already done that they have actually as a as a sort of a alternative they conducted their first takeoff and landing from andaman and nicobar islands so that part of the the bay of bengal linking the west pacific that portion is covered on our side we have the american uh, base in djibouti we have the entire arab gulf countries at uh, the american navy's prowess so is there going you see that uh, you know that that pocketed competition between medium sized actors excluding america which is a big size actor china is going to be completely uh, dependent on its own self in the entire western indian ocean region now this is this is what i leave you in the audience with that our friend china is going to be the sole actor the sole actor following its own interests in the entire waters of western indian ocean uh, we are not going to you know make conjectures that turkey and qatar will side with china or you know some other country will come to china's aid is pakistan just going to be a spectator will pakistan come out of its myopic approach come out of the cave and try to be to try to extend itself like the the young lady who wrote that article for your website on maritime domain awareness is pakistan going to uh, carry out an extended defense uh, layered defense in its waters is it going to go beyond that into longer term thinking unfortunately and i hate to be a pessimist i hate to be someone who is the harbinger of bad news i hate to be someone who says things which unfortunately most of the time turn out to be correct uh, we are i say this again we are overly fixated on afghanistan we are not thinking anywhere beyond pakistan except afghanistan fine the afghan peace process is going everything is going but again i am more concerned with our long term economic prosperity i am indeed concerned with the success of cpec because it will bring benefits to the people of pakistan so uh, from that point of view i want that we do something also proactively instead of just being a, a, in a reactive mode about securing our long term geo economic interests which are as i mentioned 
intertwined with these uh, geostrategic competitions going on so let's see what happens so uh, I'll, i i have a concluding topic that i thought of uh, discussing in the very uh, last um, moments of this podcast mm -hmm. before we end it uh, interesting article by c raja mohan uh, published in foreign policy uh, if you can recall sakhi uh, last time i think that was the second episode we discussed about how uh, the people in asia uh, people like you and me uh, general public uh, perceive the uh, foray of an extremist actor in uh, our asian geopolitics so sri raja mon has written a very uh, a very interesting piece quite uh, subtle i would say and uh, he has uh, talked about uh, the title of the pieces you will get an idea what i'm saying uh, asian nationalist hold the key to a more effective us china strategy wow so uh, i would uh, i would rephrase it i i can rephrase the title uh, make it asianness nationalist hold the key to how us can more effectively counter china that would be a more appropriate title to okay so he has talked about how missing from all these expansive security debates is the question of asian nationalism and how the united states could profitably align with it uh, nationalism is not a popular term in the lexicon of washington of uh, western foreign policy establishment i i i partially disagree with it but then he uh, talks about how uh, chinese nationalism is widely seen as a major threat to stability and security in asia equally strongly and similar national sentiments in other asian countries ought to be an integral part of constructing regional stability um, uh, then he has talked about how asian nationalists viewed the united states alliances during the cold war as an external imposition and these nationalists prevailed against european colonialism Japanese imperialism and communist internationalism they are not likely to be simply rolled over by china's growing power <clears throat> so somehow he is uh, he is uh, uh, i am adding my personal uh, observation to this uh, somehow he uh, he ratifies or he he agrees to this idea that uh, the uh, that that the involvement of united states in this region too much involvement of us in this region would be frowned upon by uh, the asian nationalist uh, he has uh, talked about uh, what happened in the past uh, united states alliances uh, in asia in asia 
during the Cold War against Soviet Union as an external opposition. So he has somehow hinted to that. Uh, but then uh, in the last paragraph of this article, uh, he has uh, written, if the United States is looking for an Asia strategy that is quote-unquote inexpensive, sustainable, <laughs> that that word inexpensive oh my god that says a lot of things that says a lot this is a lot of things we've come to where we started yes <laughs> autonomy <laughs> strategic strategic autonomy uh, strategic autonomy is nowhere <laughs> okay so <laughs> In the United States is looking for an Asia strategy that is inexpensive, sustainable, rooted in regional realities, and able to mobilize enthusiastic partners ready to share the burden. It must empower Asian nationalists. <laughs> and then uh, Washington must bet on the strong instincts of Asian elites to defend their territorial sovereignty and national wow. identity. Wow. The rest, how the United States supports Asian nationalists to defend themselves against hegemony is a matter of detail. Very interesting piece. Very well, I think uh, I, I would really, uh, that is interesting and I would uh, I request you first of all that when we are done with this episode, please do share that um, commentary with me. I want to share this piece. I mean, just uh, the excerpts which I've heard so far from you with Mr. J uh, uh, Dr. Jay Shankar, India's uh, external affairs minister. I was re recently listening to his uh, Jan 2020, early in the year, Rice in a Dialogue podcast. He mentioned about the India way and yeah. the, the, the grand illusion which he presented. <laughs> India, you know, having its own identity, its own policies, which are focused on an India first approach to the region, not influenced by any particular great power, multilateralism, this and that. And this again, you see that word, that is what brings everything down to smithereens and that is inexpensive. What does that mean? Are you talking about the net security provider status? Are you talking about the fact that recently, Talha, are you aware, I just remembered, are you aware that India's Vice Chief of Army Staff, not talking about the Navy or the Air Force, India's Vice Chief of Army Staff, Lieutenant General Saini, he, uh, he is going to the US, I believe he has gone to the US, to hold uh, familiarization uh, visits with the US Army Pacific Headquarters. And uh, so you see that land component is also going on over there. <laughs> and so apart from the maritime component, uh, the Indian Army is also gearing itself towards specification of its uh, troop structure. Although the fact remains that obviously, again, yesterday you must have heard the news, uh, India's uh, incumbent army chief, General Narwane, he very pragmatically asserted that uh, theaterization of uh, Indian command structures is not a matter of years, it will take several years. So you can rule out the fact that the current uh, and the first CDS is going to make that happen. And so um, uh, in the absence of a theaterized structure, there is going to be an extra regional patron for India, 
when it wants to synergize its air land and uh, naval forces and that uh, that uh, inexpensive service can be offered by none other than uh, india itself is that what mr mohan was implying implicitly there can be multiple meanings that can be one meaning of uh, of this uh, this word inexpensive but again you see the, the, the contents which you the the, con, the you see again the content which you mentioned you see he talks about asian nationalism defending their identity defending their territory he is not uh, it could be taken in the context of taiwan also all right mm -hmm. but it could also be taken in the context of india trying to sell its argument that it is defending its uh, what it claims is so called chinese occupation of territories across arunachal pradesh and the pangongso area so uh, that that uh, that approach is not uh, offering itself as uh, again if if that's not partnership or alliance what is it beats me yes uh, absolutely that is what the indians are doing uh, and likewise they are now uh, inviting the united states to uh, empower the asian nationalists i think the 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 the, the, the main uh, take away from this piece is that uh, i don't know maybe i'm being uh, perhaps my assumption is wrong but uh, is somehow you they, they are like uh, encouraging the united states to foment uh insurrections uh empower the nationalism uh and uh, empower the nationalism in asian region to to counteract china in different places well, let me i think that uh, the point which you made here which you believe could be a possibility let me just add something to it maybe and i want you to comment on this after i state this fact i want your comments on it so i was um, um editing um the recent issue of pakistan geostrategic review newsletter for uh, our premium audience and um, some of the updates which i came across over the past two weeks the us aid us agency for international development interestingly over the past two weeks alone has made five year investments now here i'm going to mention countries where us aid has made five year investments the entire south uh, the entire central asia a hydro connectivity infrastructure project for uh, water in kazakhstan kyrgyzstan tajikistan uzbekistan right and central asia is covered in africa egypt zambia kenya in asia philippines right and uh, i believe we have one in uh, fiji as well so as far as the you see uh, when the point which you made uh, if uh, you say that uh, maybe you see we are open to a discussion if you believe that uh, mr raja mohan perhaps wants 
to encourage US insurrection in these countries the asian nationalist approach obviously to counterbalance china in the uh, mainland territories countries which are not literal you will need economic influence more than security influence and the main executing agency in that will be uh, us uh, organizations which can offer economic incentives to those countries to distance themselves away from china and uh, similar agreements going on but so do you really think um, i want to ask you this the keywords which you mentioned of mr mohan's article who uh, which countries do you think is he indirectly referring to i won't uh, i don't think that uh, he is referring to any countries he is referring to nationalities and when, when we when we talk about nationalities you see what's happening in uh, you can see the recent spate of attacks uh, that have happened in balochistan uh, i think uh, the 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 the, the sub the sub national the sub nationalities uh, are being Uh, talked about here because sub nationalities sub nationalities are being referred to here when he is talking oh. about asian when when he is talking about asian nationalism he isn't talking uh, about uh, the westphalian notion about the westphalian notion of nation nation states he is talking about the the uh, the sub nationalism that needs to be empowered what is an expensive wow. item, uh, I ask this question: What what is inexpensive? These uh, ins these insurgencies, these asymmetric engagements are inexpensive. I think this is what inexpensive means here. That's a very good point. That's a very it's good a, point. It, it is a very it, it was a very subtle piece, and I I think it must have uh, uh, it it must have given some ideas to uh, those who are sitting in the in in Washington and who. May who may have come across this, they would they, they would have uh, given it a thought, and and frankly, US is an expert in this uh, game. They have been playing it for so long. But it is good that uh, <laughs> Mohan Raja Sab is uh, hinting towards uh, this. This could be a very an inexpensive, sustainable game. Well, uh, we all know that uh, Pakistan has been. Uh, accused since long of trying to engage in uh, asymmetric warfare and bleeding by a thousand cuts but if what you um, uh, assess is the case then i think that someone else is uh, actually trying to sell uh, the uh, benefits of asymmetric warfare and uh, that's astounding i mean that is something uh, thank you for educating me by the way that's something the, the sub nationalist aspect is a whole different plane altogether so anyways talha it was uh, a, a wonderful session today and uh, i think this stands out as one of the most uh, different episodes we've conducted including my audio podcast thus far it was very enriching um, so we traveled from the horn of africa to the shores of the pacific uh, talha took us actually the other way around talha started in the pacific we ended up in the horn of africa now we clo- we close a- into the fact that uh, there are some um, countries which uh, aspire to have regional status and they are actually encouraging an extra regional force to promote asian nationalism so i'll just leave it at that the irony just um, you know uh, 
the irony just makes me say that um, this leaves me speechless. So th uh, Talha, thank you for your time. It uh, it was a pleasure to host this uh, co-host this episode with you again. And until next time, the audience uh, may leave their feedback and uh, keep your questions coming. I received some uh, encouraging emails and uh, especially some other comments related to uh, about uh, developments uh, in the Indian Ocean. Thank you, Talha. And until next time, Allah Hafiz. Allah Hafiz.